Rob Cartledge of robcartledgeministries.com. Titus 2.1 says, You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Multitudes of professed Christians around the globe are perplexed when it comes to doctrine and clearly articulating their faith. Because of this lack of understanding, many Christians are believing the most absurd and heretical beliefs. And due to this, we have seen an incredible increase of cultish views even inside of mainstream churches. This series, Critical Doctrine, is to confront this dilemma with clear and precise teaching on the basic foundational doctrines of our faith. Lord, we just thank you for this time now, and, and Lord, I just open this pulpit to you. I open the pulpit to a move of the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit, you will speak through me and anoint me to speak this message uh, and help us to uh, understand a little bit more of the doctrines of the church and uh, theology of Christology, and help us to understand these uh, deeper, significant truths. Even though some of them might seem very plain and simple on the outset, help us to get a revelation of the truth and how important it is to know this and be, be uh, founded and established in this. And so we pray that you'll just be with me now, and all of us as we receive this message in the name and the blood of Jesus. Amen. Okay, we're going to do Christology Part 5. And uh, it's a part of the series of Critical Doctrine. And the main scripture that I really draw from that sort of hit me when I thought of doing this uh, series is Titus 2.1, which says, You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. And simply that's one of the calls of, of ministers of the gospel, especially church uh, pastors, is to teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. So that's where this is coming from. J.I. Packer, he declared that there can be no spiritual health without doctrinal knowledge. No spiritual health in, in a Christian without doctrinal knowledge. If you don't understand doctrine, if you have a, or a mixed up doctrine or a false doctrine, you can't be truly spiritually healthy in Christ. And so that's a really important uh, quote, I think. Martin Lloyd-Jones also wisely asserts, we cannot have the benefits of Christianity if we shed its doctrines. How many churches today are shedding, you know, doctrines of Christianity or, or ignoring certain doctrines and don't preach it? You know, they preach about God's love, but they fail to preach about the wrath of God because God has a wrath as well as he is a God of love. But you can, they water it down. You can't have one without the other. They preach about heaven, but they don't preach about hell. They're not balanced in their doctrinal efforts. Philip Brooks observed, the truth is no preacher ever had any strong power that was not preaching of doctrine. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? If you want power in the pulpit, you've got to preach doctrine and pure doctrine. Augustus Williams said, the question is not whether a doctrine is beautiful, but whether it is true. Doctrines on hell aren't beautiful doctrines, are they? Quite frightening. But they're true. Just because they're not beautiful doesn't mean they're not true. And when we wish to go to a place, we do not ask whether the road leads through a pretty country, but whether it is the right road. Mm, if you want to go somewhere, mm. you know, it might be a treacherous path, but if that's the only path, you've got to take it. And in a sense, you know, Jesus has called us to follow him along the narrow road that leads to life. And it's not broad and spacious like the wide road that leads to destruction. It's actually quite treacherous sometimes to walk on the narrow road. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, Doctrines are like maps. 
They are not the reality and may not be as exciting as reality, but they chart reality for us in a vital way. When it says they're not the reality, like we're just we're just talking about. I, 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 I probably not. I wouldn't have used that actual term. I think C.S. Lewis probably went a bit far by saying they're not reality because doctrines are reality. They are the reality and the truth. But in his example, he's he's relating to uh, the map itself is not the reality. It just charts a course. So just as studying a map of the shore of the Atlantic is not as exciting as walking along the Atlantic coast, so studying the doctrine of atonement is not exactly the same as experiencing the cross itself. Mm-hmm. So we study the atonement, but it's not the same as actually being atoned. Mm. Yeah, true. yeah, that's the difference. But still, doctrine is reality. Mm. I, I wouldn't have said it's not reality. Yeah. But the purpose of a map is to represent, graph, and explain the reality. And if you want to find your way, you need to have a reliable map. And we should constantly consult it frequently. Mm. And uh, what is our map? The Bible. The Bible. Yeah, the Bible is the map. So Christology, if you remember, we've studied the deity of Christ. We did a few sermons on that. We did the humanity of Christ and also the union of deity and humanity of Christ. If you remember those sermons, there's also, we looked at the kenosis of Christ, Mm -hmm. the impeccability of Christ and the earthly life of Christ. So we've done quite a bit so far. And today we're going to look at the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, which is going to be the fact of the resurrection, the nature of the resurrection, the significance of the resurrection, and the importance of the ascension. And in the next two, uh, next sermon, I'm going to aim to get through two big areas, the present ministry of Christ and the future ministry of Christ. So that should be, we should wrap it up with those two. And then we'll be on to another doctrinal study uh, and there's quite a few that we got to choose from i'm thinking of doing the doctrine of god but i was also thinking of doing a doctrine on israelology which has not been done before or not that i know of or properly anyway so the resurrection and the ascension of christ michael green said christianity does not hold the resurrection to be one of among many tenets of belief without faith in the resurrection there would be no christianity at all once disproved you have disposed of christianity I've used that quote once before. Once you disprove the resurrection, you've disposed of Christianity. And, you know, you might not actually disprove Christianity on a mass scale, but certainly if it's disproved in your heart, then you've disposed of Christianity in your own heart. And there's been many Christians that I've read about, anyway, read on blogs and so on, on threads, that claim to have been Christian, uh, but then the resurrection became too impossible for them to accept and they disposed of their Christianity in their hearts which is really sad 1 Corinthians 15 12 to 14 says but if it is preached now what I'm about to read Paul basically makes the same assertion here but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So Paul pretty well sums it up. If Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is our faith. What's it all for, after all? And I've said in the past, if that's the case, we may as well become Buddhists or Muslims or or New Ages or whatever other thing takes our fancy, or Baha'i. Just embrace them all. (laughs) Steve Kumar said, without the resurrection, there will be not be a Christianity. 
Christianity stands or falls with the resurrection, and this single factor makes Christianity remarkably one of a kind. That's the only thing that makes us Christian when it comes down to it. That's the backbone of the Christian faith. You take it out and the body falls. C.S. Lewis goes so far as declaring, if the thing happened, it was the central event in the history of the earth. And the ascension was an unprecedented and extraordinary event which took place before the eyes of the disciples and was their last glimpse of Christ as he was translated to glory. This witness sealed their faith and bound the disciples to Christ. You know, the disciples saw Jesus raised from the dead, but they'd also seen Lazarus raised from the dead. They'd seen others raised from the dead. But when they stood there and saw Jesus ascend to heaven, that sealed their faith. Yes, he's just gone to glory. It's like when Elisha saw Elijah taken off to heaven, raptured off to heaven. It sealed his faith, you know. And that's, that's what the disciples had. And that's how important the ascension is. They had to see him raptured. So the fact of the resurrection, Charles Ryrie said, the fact of the resurrection of Christ is overwhelmingly attested to in the Bible. First of all, you are confronted with an empty tomb. Many explanations are offered as why it was empty, but they all are unbelievable, except the one that says he arose from the dead. You know, every other uh, theory that they've come up with to explain the empty tomb seems so implausible compared to Jesus actually raising from the dead. Seems like the most plausible of all the explanations. Um, William Lane Craig goes into great detail about this. He's currently been doing it too on in his Christology series. So it's really good, uh, worthwhile having a listen to. But some of the false explanations, and there are many, but some of them are, his body was stolen. Yeah. Well, the first thing is the body was, if the disciples stole the body, then they were committed to death to cover, cover up a lie. Why would they commit to death to cover up a lie? Why would they even bother stealing the body just to form this religion where all they suffer is persecution continually? Thrown in prison time and, time and again. And why would they hold to it? Wouldn't it be easier just to say, forget this religion, let's just give up the body and let's just get back to work, get, get back on our boats. If an outside group stole the body, so if it wasn't the disciples of Jesus themselves that stole the body, just say it was an outside group, all they would have had to do to just to get rid of the whole Christian faith was just come up with the body. See, this is the body. We stole it. There it is. And everyone will look upon him and say, yep, that's Jesus. End of Christianity. But no body was forthcoming. No body. <laughs> Dead body was forthcoming. Now, Judas Iscariot, also, they say Judas Iscariot was crucified and Jesus was never harmed, that they, Judas Iscariot took the place of Jesus. That's what the Muslims actually teach as well. Mm. Now, that, that's a pretty crazy, crazy speculation. Mm. A high-profile figure like Jesus could not have been doubled by a willing betrayer such as Judas Iscariot, mm. who, as far as we know, did not even look like Jesus. You know, if Jesus was going to go to the cross, why would, did Jesus, Judas put up his hand and say, I'll do it for you? You know, and not only that, Jesus had to appear in courtrooms. He had to appear before people that had heard him preach time and time again. He was appearing before thousands of people while he was, you know, going through his uh, court case. And before Pilate, thousands of people probably were standing in the 
before Pilate, saying, crucify him, crucify him. They all knew who he was. He's a high-profile figure. You can't double that sort of a character. You know, imagine if something like that happened to Sean Connery. You know, I'm not only using Sean Connery because he's a real high-profile figure. Everyone knows his face. If they tried to double him, wouldn't people know? That's not Sean Connery. You know? And they didn't have plastic surgery back then to go and <laughs> manipulate facial expressions. And... But this is ludicrous to think that a man who had a public ministry of three and a half years could suddenly be switched with another man and fool a nation who scrutinised him in their courts. He was scrutinised in their courts. They knew it was Jesus. Amen? Amen. Now, what about the, the claim that he survived the crucifixion? That's a cra- That's just as absurd. Jesus, If Jesus survived survived the crucifixion, would the disciples have put their hope in a man who looked more like he needed emergency life support than worship? You know, imagine how he would have looked. If he survived that crucifixion, he would have been just laying there, blood everywhere, gone. Yeah, I'm alive, guys, worship me. You know, he was he was a mess, you know, at his crucifixion. He was so, dis- yeah, that's it. He was so disfigured, he was beyond... The image of a man. They didn't couldn't even tell he was a man anymore, any longer. And that's what Chuck Missler was just saying in the lesson we've been doing. That um, Mel Gibson did us all a great, uh, you know, service in uh, giving us the movie The Passion. However, he one thing he couldn't do was to do the full extent, take it the full way, which was make Jesus disfigured, disfigure him so much that he didn't even doesn't even represent a man any longer. So the actual crucifixion, who's seen the passion here? Everyone? Yeah. So it was pretty pretty full on, wasn't it? But it wasn't full on enough to be comparable to what really happened to him. So so for him to have uh, survived the crucifixion, you know, a walking corpse would not have raised the faith of disciples to live for him, would it? Would you be putting your trust in someone who just barely looks alive? No. Jesus had to appeal, appear to them completely healed, completely you know, healthy and strong and probably more glorious than he was before for them to put their faith in him. Charles Ryrie said, All the appearances of the Lord after the resurrection are evidence that he did rise. The sheer number of witnesses to the appearance of Christ after the resurrection makes it impossible to conceive of the story being fa- fabricated by a few. And these are some of where they're recorded. And the obvious, obvious places are in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20 to 21. But I want you to turn with us to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. And this is the creed of the early church. And uh, it's, a, it's a sample of the exact form of the apostles' early teaching. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve, and he also appeared to the Marys and and so on, to the women, the disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. That's to Paul, who had a Damascus Road experience when he saw the living Christ in glory. Okay, so we're going to look at the nature of the resurrection. 
When Christ was resurrected, he was raised in his physical body. He was not raised as a spirit or as an influence. He was raised by the spirit and the spirit was in him, but he wasn't raised as a spirit creature. He was raised in physical form, so the scriptures tell us. The resurrection also does not mean that his memory lives on in the minds of his believers, much like most world religions. You know, Muhammad died and his memory lives on. Buddha died and his memory lives on. You know, the masters of the Sikh religion died and their memories live on, you know. But uh, Jesus died and was raised to life. He was viewed by up to 500 disciples at once. They viewed him ascend to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father. And we have a living Messiah. So does any other religion have that claim? None. So it's a pretty powerful religion we believe in. I wouldn't even call it a religion. Pretty powerful faith and a relationship we have with a living God who's the truth. His body was seen and felt by his disciples. You should all remember the story of Thomas where Jesus, he said, I won't believe unless I see him. I stick my fingers in his side and in his hands. And then Jesus entered the room and he said, do it. Stick your hand here. Stick your fingers here. And uh, Thomas bowed down and said, you are my Lord, my God. But I want you to open up to Luke 24 because this is an interesting one. Because he also did not appear as a ghost and he also could eat. So he had a physical body which could actually absorb food. And that's important because a spirit won't eat food. Where would the food go? Where would the food go? Just fall on the floor. <laughs> That's why these religions where they stick food out on the doorstep of their homes to appease the gods. Mm. They go out in the morning, it's still there. <laughs> Either that or someone thieved it from next door. 24. <laughs> 36. Okay, it says, While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So he just appeared among them. He didn't come in through a door. He just appeared. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you say I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of the joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. You know, seeing they still didn't believe even though he was standing right there. So when he sat down and started to eat food, that's when they must have gone, he's back. There he is, you know. Isn't that amazing? 1 John 1, one, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. That's John saying, we touched him, we've seen him, we've heard him, he's real, he's alive. Yeah, yeah. So the nature of the resurrection continued is, uh, although the resurrection body of Jesus Christ was able to be touched, it was unlike our body in that he could pass through closed doors, as we just was reading. And he could never die again in Romans 6.9. And we just will go to that just for the sake of hearing it in Scripture 
And it says, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Death no longer has mastery over him. He cannot die again. He died once for the sins of men. So by faith in Christ, we too have the promise of this resurrection body. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44 says, So will it be with the resurrection of the dead? The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. So that's telling us that we too will receive that same body that Jesus had. And if you think about it, because he's talking about this body being sown, sown in death or sown in, at least in this life, you know, being sown into this world of hardship can explain suffering a lot. We're just a seed. We're a seed. And, and how different does a seed look to the plant that it creates? Or it becomes, I should say, not creates. How different does the seed look to the plant that it becomes? Very, Very different, doesn't it? In many respects, it doesn't look anything like the plant. And you know what? If our bodies, if, if this is so, if we are sown, uh, this perishable body is sown and becomes imperishable, then how glorious is our imperishable bodies? If we don't even look anything like what it's going to be, you know. So that's how what we have waiting for us. For those who believe God, this we are going to receive a body that will never perish, that nothing can happen to it that would destroy it or harm it. All we have to do is find Christ in this life, hold to Christ in this life, die believing, and you will receive an, an eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God. Good motivation, isn't it? So the resurrection of Jesus Christ proved his claims about himself and it verified his message and his truth claims. That's what it did. This is the significance, I should say. The significance of the resurrection is that it proved his truth claims. It proved everything that he said about himself. It verified everything that he said. And that's why we needed to have a resurrection. And that confirmed what he said. The resurrection is our guarantee of eternal life. That's the significance of it. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 to 22 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If Christ hasn't been raised. But if only this life, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So if we're in Christ, we will be made alive in him. And 1 John 5, 11 to 13, it says, And this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has, li- has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. You have eternal life in Christ. Don't ever let go of that faith. And if, if doubts arise in your mind as to the truth, just just put them aside for a little while and ask God about them. But don't get rash. Like a lot of Christians of the past, they got rash and they doubts arise in their mind and 
they don't get an answer forthcoming in, within the time specified by their minds, and then they give up the faith and think atheism is better. How could atheism be better? There's no hope in atheism. There's no hope. There's no greater hope than Christianity. You, get the, you, you look into the hopes of every world religion. There is not a hope that compares to Christianity. There's not one hope outside of Christianity that has a hope of a heaven with streets of gold. No, tell me another hope that has streets of what gold. About a harem of women? <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, what yeah, well, what they're hoping for is a, is a heaven, a pornographic heaven. Really, that's oh. it. That's crazy. That's, that is a disgusting faith, isn't it? Yeah. To think that if I go... <laughs> I can tell you that. I don't think any woman would want a harem of men. <laughs> but um, obviously that's the motivation behind that desire is deprive this poor guy of women in his natural life and then he'll be willing to kill himself and blow somebody up murder someone and kill, kill himself so he can go into this pornographic heaven. Why would you even offer that hope? Why don't they offer streets of gold? Why don't they offer eternal life without sickness or death? It comes from a, a mind which was corrupted by evil. And therefore, they, he would say things like, go and kill somebody for Allah and you'll receive this pornographic heaven. You know? It's crazy stuff. The resurrection is also our hope of a future resurrection of all men. Some to everlasting life and many to everlasting death in hell. So John 5, 28 to 29, Jesus says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. All who are in their graves. That's the righteous and the unrighteous. Those who have done good will rise to live. And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Chuck Missler was saying that those in hell at the moment go to hell because they, didn't, they don't go to hell because of their sins. They go to hell because of the rejection of the Son of God. But when they rise to judgment, then they're judged because of their sins and they're thrown in the lake of burning sulfur because of their sins. And hell, which is where they were held captive up until the judgment, is thrown into the lake of burning sulfur also. So is the grave, meaning there will be no more death. That means no one will ever be placed in the ground dead again. So that's interesting, isn't it, when you look at it from that perspective. The resurrection is also proof to us of his coming judgments, of his coming judgments. We are all going to stand before God on judgment day, and we've got to live with that in mind. We've got to live with that, you know, stamped on our eyeballs. Judgment is coming, and we must Prepare for it, because Christians will be judged also for what they've done, the deeds done while in the body. Now, if you hold to the faith in Christ and haven't rejected Christ and claim to be Christian, because I know a lot of people that claim to be Christian, yet they don't believe in Jesus. So it's a false claim. That's using the Lord's name in vain. You can't say, you're, you know, I'm Greek Orthodox to the end, but don't believe in Jesus and are an atheist. You can't make these claims you can't say you're Christian and be an atheist as well and I've heard people say that ludicrous it shows how little they think about spiritual things and how crazy some of their statements are but those that will 
get into heaven and they're truly believing in Christ and they love Jesus with all their heart, cannot lose salvation if they die with that frame of mind and with that heart. But when they get there, they will be judged according to what they have done, judged according to the deeds done while in the body. So there'll be some Christians that have done marvellous things for the Lord and the Lord will see that it was done with pure motives, not selfish motives, because some that are first will be last and many that are last will be first. So that's going to be quite a surprising day. You'll be thinking, this guy, he had such a massive ministry, did incredible things for the Lord. So we thought the Lord will show his motives behind everything he did. And then we'll realise, oh, he was living for money all that time. He was living for the wealth that he could get through preaching the gospel. Therefore, he'll have the lowest place in heaven. But then a little old lady that just prayed sincerely for her children and her loved ones and her friends will be on a throne beside the Lord, an unknown, someone that no one even considered as worth anything. The Lord will give her a place of honour. So the first will be last and the last will be first. Acts 17.31 says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. He has given proof of these coming judgments by raising Christ from the dead. The resurrection also arms us with power to believe that God will work through us powerfully as we serve him. Power to believe that God will work through us powerfully. As we serve him. Ephesians 1.18-20 says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he explains what that power is. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That's the power of the resurrection. That's resurrection power within us. Now let's look at the, import, at the importance of the ascension. Jesus Christ also spoke of his ascension and glorification at the right hand of the Father. John 6.62 says, What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? So he's telling us that he's going to ascend to where he was before. What does he mean by that? He was, he was, in, he was at the right hand of the Father before he came, didn't he? Wasn't he? Yeah, because he is God. Matthew twenty six sixty four. Jesus replied, But I say to you, all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. In the future you'll see him sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. Uh, this was fulfilled and written about in Acts 1, 9 to 11, when they saw him ascend. So Charles Rowrie sort of sums up the importance of the ascension with the following... It marked uh, the conclusion of his humiliation and limitation on earth. Remember, when he came to earth, he was limited in his use of his power. And he was also humiliated. You know, uh, before men, men would always accuse him falsely. And he was always, you know, debating with Pharisees and Sadducees. And uh, then he was treated shamefully and and crucified like a common criminal. Uh, And... When all that was completed, the ascension was the completion and conclusion of all that. It marked the beginning of the period of his exaltation at the right hand of God. You can see that in Ephesians 1, 20 to 23. He was, as a forerunner, it made him the anchor of our faith in Hebrews 6, 20. And we're just going to take a quick look at that as well. So if you can zip to Hebrews. We read that today, didn't we? 
Right, let's go back to 19, actually. Everyone there? 6.19? It says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He was a forerunner. He was the anchor of our faith, and he went into heaven ahead of us. He began his present ministry of being our high priest and preparing a place for us in Hebrews 4.14-16 and John 14.2. If we go to John 14.2, or if you want to, I'll just go there. John 14.2. John 14, 2, and it says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And then he said, You know the way to the place where I'm going. And what what he means by that is the spirit in you knows the way to the place where you're going. You might not mentally understand how to get there, but the spirit knows the way and the spirit that they were, would receive or had received. It also gave him headship over the church, and we see that in Colossians 1.18 and Ephesians 4.8, which is head of the body, the church. Okay, and so that's the importance of the ascension. Without the ascension, it's like caps off his ministry, doesn't it? He's now at the right hand of the Father. He's head over the church, um, over his body. And um, he is now Lord of all, King of Kings, the Judge who will judge all mankind. Um, actually, says all creation as well will be judged. That would be an interesting day to see all creation judged. Wow. You know, I don't know. There is a, me- a mention of that in Genesis. I have to look further into it about animals being judged. Mm. So it's going to be interesting. Anyway, God will probably everyone will be everything will be judged in a different manner. He'll judge the righteous differently than he judges the unrighteous or the sinners that have never had their sins washed and atoned for by the blood of Jesus. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so in conclusion, John 17, 1 to 3. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. So this is eternal life, that we may know the only true God and Jesus Christ. That is eternal life. If you know Jesus, you have eternal life. If you don't know Jesus, you don't have eternal life. That's why Jesus, when he said, you know, get away from me, you evildoers, all those people that claim to be Christian... What was the reason? I never knew you. Get away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Other translations, get away from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So you've got to know Jesus because he is eternal life. He is the door. Jesus fulfilled the earthly requirements of the law and has now all authority in heaven on earth to forgive sins and give eternal life to anyone he chooses. That's Matthew in Matthew eleven twenty seven, you can see that he chooses who receives eternal life. That's why no soul uh, who gets in heaven is gets in there without prayer. So we've got to pray all the souls into the kingdom of heaven because he'll put a person on your heart and you've got to pray it through. So that, that you know, 
in a sense, that prayer will put upon Jesus the will to save them. So we've got to keep praying for our loved ones, our families, and so on. Amen. All right, so next week... No, sorry, not next week. It'll be next time. We will be looking at wrapping up the final sections of our study on Christology. And that will be the present ministry of Christ and the future ministry of Christ. That's how we're going to wrap it up. So I look forward to getting that finished. I reckon that will be the, one of the best sections of it all. Yeah. All right, let's pray. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The coming kingdom. Thank you, Lord. We just thank you for this... Uh, sermon today we thank you and i pray that it's really been helpful and has blessed us um both spiritually and uh, intellectually um and also in our heart as it may be affected change and i pray also that it may have clarified a few things in us that we may not have understood fully but uh, i know that it, everyone in this church understands these matters quite clearly but i pray for those on youtube who uh, may have watched this that they will have also been impacted by the uh, uh, doctrine that was just preached today. And I pray that it helps them to sort and clarify their doctrine and get it right. Because as the word says, doctrine saves us uh, in the sense that having a pure doctrine will, will save us and get us in the kingdom. If we don't have a doctrine which includes Jesus Christ as the Son of God who was raised from the dead and has ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father, if we don't have that doctrine intact, then we don't have eternal life. So I just pray that you will really convict many on, on this point in the name of Jesus. So, Lord, we just pray now that you will bless the rest of our day and this whole week and that you'll be with us and cover us and protect us. Put your angels all around us at all times. And uh, bless all that we do in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.